where we're going to, but I will tell you where we're beginning. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so when you notice verse 10, you can clearly see what Paul's doing here. He's, he's making a distinction between godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. And simply put, godly sorrow leads a person to repentance, which leads a person to salvation. Notice that phrase, without regret. It means that a person who truly repents will never regret it. Amen? A person who truly repents of their sin will never regret it. But a person who never repents of their sin will eternally regret it. So think about it that way. Now, godly sorrow leads a person to salvation. That's his point here. And salvation brings joy. Uh, Paul is very clear here. He says, the sorrow of this world, a worldly sorrow, he says, it's not going to lead you to salvation. He says, it's going to lead you to death. And so the idea is that worldly sorrow is sorrow that doesn't lead to genuine repentance. That's what it is. If it doesn't lead you to a place where you genuinely repent before the Lord, your sorrow is worldly. Now, it could be legitimate sorrow. You could truly be sorry. A lot of people have sorrow in their life that that aren't Christians at all. So it's not to say that it's not sorrow at all. It's It's just not the right type of sorrow. It could be sorrow over the consequences of your actions. It could be sorrow because uh, someone you love is hurting or perhaps someone you love hurts you or you hurt them. Uh, It could just be some disease, some sickness that comes into your life and sorrow that comes as a result of that. So it can be real sorrow, but just not a godly sorrow. Now, before a person is saved, uh, it goes without saying that, that, that they have to repent of their sins. But before they repent of their sins, something has to happen. Before they repent of their sins, there has to be a godly sorrow. Without that godly sorrow, they won't truly repent of their sins. And so, godly sorrow is the correct reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. Godly sorrow is the correct reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. And when you respond correctly to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you repent of your sins. Now, the necessity of repentance is probably one of the most overlooked things concerning the gospel in the age that we live in today. Because we so often don't really want to focus on repentance with people. We want to focus more on just to believe with people. And you must believe. You must 100% believe. But understand that you must also repent. That word repent, it literally means to change your mind. Now that doesn't mean that you're just believing something intellectually to be saved. It means that you change your mind about who Christ is. And that knowledge that you now have about the Lord changes the way that you live your life. So the idea is it's not just a heart thing. It's a mind thing. Jesus said before a person builds a tower, what do they do? They sit down and they make sure they've got enough money to finish building that, right? Before a king goes to war against someone of another kingdom, he makes sure that he has the the manpower to win that war. And Jesus taught us that following Him is not only an emotional part, there is a part there, but it's also a logical part where you sit down and you count the costs. Where you understand in your mind, I'm coming to Christ. In my mind, I have to understand that that there is a new lifestyle that's expected of me. And so we can tell when a person who has truly repented 
We can tell when a person has truly repented, when they have repented with godly sorrow, because their lifestyle changes. Godly sorrow leads to godly behavior. There's a lot of people, I think, who have deceived themselves into thinking that they've repented because they said, God, I'm sorry. But there's far more to repenting than simply looking up and saying, God, I'm sorry. sorry. So what Paul's going to do here is in verse 11, he's going to begin giving us the evidence of true repentance. How do we know if I've got the sorrow of the world or if I have the sorrow of the Lord? And, you know, we always need to remember that we define biblical terms by the Bible. So when you start defining a term like repentance, it's not really that important to go to Webster's Dictionary because you might get something completely different, right? But when you want a definition of what repentance is, then you need to go to what the Scripture says about repentance. And this is a wonderful place to do that. Right here, it tells us what Godly sorrow is. Now, now look at verse 11 here, where he says, For what, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So he, he, you see this list of things that godly sorrow wrought in the heart of these Corinthians. And these things are the things that prove that their repentance was genuine. And that's what Paul means when he says, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So let's look at each of these. The first one is earnestness there. And this word means eagerness. And so the idea here is when a person truly repents, there's an eagerness, there's a strong desire in their life now to be righteous. This isn't the result of coercion by a preacher. It isn't the result of circumstances. It's an inner longing to be free from sin and to cling to righteousness. When you repent, you are eager to do so. You are eager to live your life for God. And so that's one of the ways you know you've truly repented. Because in your heart, there is an eagerness. There is a desire. I want to live a holy life. I don't want to be wrapped up in this sin anymore. You don't have to have somebody over you telling you, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. On the inside of you, there's now an eager longing. You used to want to sin. You used to want to live this way. But now the Holy Spirit of God has created this earnestness, this desire, this eagerness for the things of God. And then he says, an eagerness to clear yourselves. There, there's there's an, an, an... The idea behind this is, is really, literally, when you look at the phrase, it means to vindicate yourself. And, and that phrase is used to refer to somebody who's saying, hey, I'm not guilty of this. Now, it doesn't mean that you're saying, I'm not guilty of sin. Repentance produces a desire to show others that you have indeed turned from that sin. In other words, you're not the person you used to be. Those who truly repent are concerned about how they're perceived by other people. And I say that, and and there certainly are parameters on that, but I say that because I want you to understand that now you recognize that you can be a stumbling block to people. Right? And you never want to be a stumbling block to people. You want people to know, indeed, I have been saved. Indeed, I have been born again. My life has been transformed by the Lord Himself. God has changed me. 
And so as others witness our transformation, we are cleared or we, or we are vindicated from being that untrustworthy sinner that we had been at one point in our life. They look at us and they say, you know what? You're living what you claim to live. The third thing we see here is, is the word indignation. And it's a word that means to be angry. And when you get saved, you will begin to get angry at certain things. Anger now is directed toward your sin. Anger is now directed toward uh, this life that you had before you were converted. If you are saved, you hate sin. And people who claim to be saved yet enjoy a life of sin are deceiving themselves. We hate sin because when we got saved, our eyes were, was, were open to what sin does. Primarily, our eyes were open to what sin did to Jesus. Amen? When you look at the cross, you see the effects of sin. And how can you love that anymore? How can you desire that? How can you desire that which killed and crucified Christ? There's a holy indignation. You hate sin, your own sin, because sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. Why do unbelievers continue to live in sin? Well, because they don't hate it. They don't hate it. Why do true believers continue and, and, and have a life of endurance and godliness? Because they hate sin. They hate sin. And then he uses the next word, fear. And the word there is a word that's describing an awe that a person has of God. If you fear God, it affects the way you live. And a sure sign that a person doesn't fear God is a, a life of habitual sin. If you live a life of habitual sin, more than anything, you see this in the Old Testament a lot, it shows that you don't fear God. Your refusal to repent, your refusal to turn away from what God has warned you of shows that you really don't believe God. You're really not afraid of God at all. But when you get saved, you are concerned how God perceives you. You fear the Lord. You have a reverence for Him. You, you have an awe for Him. And a fear of God is necessary for salvation. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? In other words, you can't even begin to understand the things of God until you have a proper respect for who He is, for His person. There's a fear of God there. True believers are not afraid of God, but true believers fear God. It's like your father, perhaps, if you grew up in a home with a father like that. You weren't afraid of him, but you feared him, right? There's a reverence there, a respect there. And then he says a longing. And again, this has to do with, with, a, with a passionate longing. A repentance results in this passionate desire for God, this passionate desire for holiness. It's evidenced, as, as, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this passion begins when? Well, well it begins at salvation, but it doesn't end there. It continues in your life. In other words, when you truly repent of your sins, now there is this desire in your life, this hunger in your life for righteousness and holiness. And this is one of the ways that you know that you've repented. There's a longing there. You desire to live a righteous life. And the next term he uses is synonymous with that previous term. The term zeal there. And again, this describes a sincere passion. It was Christ's zeal for God that, that prompted Him to cleanse the temple. You remember that in John 2. 
Zeal is an emotion that's demonstrated by the actions of an individual. What we're zealous about gets our attention. What we're zealous about gets our time. We call a person a zealot because they're an extremist. And listen, when you truly repent of your Lord of, of your sin, you are an extremist concerning the Lord. Amen. He is what you want in your life. Your life is all about Him. And then look at this last word, the word punishment. What punishment? In, in, in context, it, it, it describes a person's desire to, uh, to see judgment. True believer, believers are not going to look at sin and just sweep them under the rug. Not even their own sin. They don't downplay sin. They recognize, you know what? Sin has to be atoned for. And whenever you have a, a, an understanding that sin must be punished, that attitude will keep you from justifying your own sin. And it'll keep you from justifying the sin in other people's life as well. By the way, it also keeps your, you honest about your own sin. You, you make no excuse for your sin. You say, well, everybody does it. Or, well, no, no, nothing like that at all. The person who is always excusing his or her own sin, the person who is always excusing sin in other people's lives is a person who doesn't really understand what godly sorrow is because true believers are outraged by sin. They hate sin. You could even bleed that over to injustice in this world as well. Issues like abortion, oppression, things like that. True believers are zealous about. Why? Because they recognize this is sin, and sin is a terrible thing. So you look at all this and you see that true repentance is characterized by this radical change of thinking and also this radical change in behavior. And the true salvation that godly sorrow brings is life-changing. Therefore, much of what you see today concerning repentance is not really godly sorrow, it's worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow will not lead you to heaven. Worldly sorrow will lead you to hell. It will deceive you into thinking that you're okay with God. Worldly sorrow will give you a false hope. Your sorrow must be the result of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if it is, your repentance will result in your salvation. If it isn't, that sorrow will lead you to eternal death. Isn't it amazing that there's a whole section in Scripture here that tells us that there's a false repentance? Isn't that amazing? That there's a whole section of Scripture that teaches you that there is a false repentance that will not lead you to heaven. Not at all. And that when you repent, you should truly look at your repentance and say, okay, what is the fruit of repentance in my life? Is this worldly repentance that I have? That just says, you know, I'm sorry for this and I'm sorry for that but you continue to live a life of sin? Or is it godly sorrow which has led you to repentance, which has led you to salvation, which then results in joy that comes from the Lord? What type of sorrow do I have? Worldly or godly? Now we move now um, to verse 12 where he says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. 
Again, I've mentioned this before, Paul's referring to that letter that he had written to the Corinthians that was so confrontational. And within this letter, there was this rebuke toward a certain man in the church who had sinned against Paul. Probably he was trying to turn the church against Paul. But Paul didn't write to the Corinthians for that reason only, he says. He he didn't write just to rebuke that man. He didn't write just to avenge himself of the wrong that he suffered. Paul wrote this letter so the Corinthians could see the truth. And the truth was this, that Paul deeply cared for the Corinthians and that they deeply cared for him as well. Again, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. The false teachers had had attempted to deceive these people. Paul don't care about you. Paul don't love you. Paul's this. Paul's that. But Paul now, he's bringing bringing the truth to light here so that the relationship between him and the Corinthians isn't going to be destroyed. You know, truth is powerful and we should never be afraid of it. We should never ever be afraid just to be truthful and honest because God's truth sets us free and it brings unity between believers, but it will often expel unbelievers. Now look at what he says in in, in verse uh, 13. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So the repentance repentance of the Corinthians brought Paul comfort. Paul wanted that church to be there. He wanted that church to, to exist. It was situated in this area that was filled with paganism, and that church was the only light in that darkness there. Now, interestingly, Paul said that he got more joy from Titus' reaction to the Corinthians' repentance than anything else. Titus, it says, was refreshed at the reaction of the Corinthians to Paul's letter. You know, I don't know why that is. Maybe Titus had um, been depressed lately because of the actions of the Corinthians. And maybe he was telling Paul, Paul, there ain't no way these people are going to get right with God. You know, these are just troublemakers. Just forget about them. But they did. They repented. They got their life right with God. And now Titus, he has joy. And then the fact that God did this in Titus's life, this brought Paul joy. And that brings us to this point. You have no idea how many people your repentance could affect. Amen? If you would just get right with God, you have no idea how many people your repentance could affect. Your sorrow doesn't just, your, I'm sorry, your sin doesn't just bring sorrow to yourself. It brings uh, sorrow to other people. But your repentance can bring joy to yourself and can bring joy to other people as well. Now look what Paul said in verse 14. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Paul had boasted to Titus. He had said... They're going to get right. They're going to read this letter and they're going to know that what I'm saying is true and they're going to get their lives right. And he said that probably, you know, before Titus ever even left to deliver the letter. It was his faith in God. God's going to do this. And the Corinthians didn't disappoint Paul. They repented. And again, it seems to me that Titus doubted they would. And that would explain why Titus was especially refreshed at their change of heart. Because he recognized, hey, Paul was right. You know, I can almost hear Paul and Titus arguing over this matter. Paul, you wrote this letter to them. They're going to rip this thing up to shreds. And then I have to look at them and I have to deal with them for the next few days. Why do I have to be the one who takes this letter to them? Paul, I don't want to do it. Why don't you send Timothy with it? Those Corinthians, just a bunch of meanies, just a bunch of hypocrites. They can't even get along with each other. 
What do you think they're going to do when I go out there and give them this letter and it points out all this sin in their life? Then I think I can hear Paul say, Titus, God can do anything. And if these people know the Lord, they'll listen. When they hear this letter, revival is just liable to break out in the whole church. Trust me, just take this letter to them, Titus, and leave the results up to God. And guess what? Paul was right. They did get right. Titus was refreshed. And the Corinthians were blessed. Look at verse 15. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So he says, you know, Titus' affection toward the Corinthians was greater as a result of their repentance. When Titus arrived in Corinth with the letter to the Corinthians, they had to make a decision. Either they were going to receive Titus or they were going to reject him. And thankfully, they received him. In fact, it says they received him with fear and trembling. And what does that describe? It describes what happens when a person comes face to face with their sin. Fear and trembling. You know, when God, when God reveals our sin, that's how we're supposed to respond. We're not to react with pride because pride will just justify sin, cover up sin, boast in sin. But humility will admit, hey, I'm wrong. I was wrong about this. And fear and trembling will follow. And so Titus was filled with unspeakable joy now toward these Corinthians. They repented. They obeyed God's will. And as a result, Titus couldn't be happier, y'all. Titus gets excited every time he remembers what happened when he took that letter to the Corinthians. He gets excited about it. And the last verse we're going to look at, verse 16. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul said, I'm, I've, I've got joy too. Paul could trust these Corinthians. Their response of genuine repentance proved that, that he could. And now Paul could move on to different issues. And you're going to see that in the book. In the next chapter, he's going to encourage them to get involved in ministry. And then he's going to talk to them about finances. He's going to talk to them about furtherance of the gospel. And that, that kind of reminds us of this. Whenever we're in sin, it limits our opportunity of service. And it limits our opportunity even to hear from God. Because when you're living in sin, you know what you're going to hear from God? Repent. Amen? And the funny part about it is it doesn't really matter what the preacher's preaching on. That's just all you'll hear. Amen? Is repent because the Holy Spirit of God works that way, doesn't it? And you'll never be able to move on in your spiritual life because when you get in the presence of the Word of God being preached, you get in the presence of people. The only thing that the Holy Spirit's going to be saying to you is you don't need to worry about any of that. You just need to worry about getting your life right with God. God wants us to deal with our sin. And when we deal with our sin in a godly way, in a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance, we can move on in our service to the Lord. And we're going to see that in the transition of this letter here. And so to kind of summarize everything here, I know we were quick tonight, but we have some stuff we want to do. But the first thing I want to give as far as a, just kind of a, a summary is tolerating sin is not a virtue. Never think that you're virtuous because you tolerate sin in your own life or other people's life. You might think you're virtuous because you tolerate sin in your own life because you say, oh, nobody's perfect. That little phrase, nobody's perfect, is born from the pit of hell because nobody believes anybody's perfect. I don't know a single person in this world who's making that argument that nobody's perfect. Do you? That, I mean, sorry, that somebody's perfect. It's, it, it's an escape that people use when they don't want to deal with their sin. To try to make yourself look virtuous. Oh, nobody's perfect. 
Well, of course nobody's perfect. No one's claiming to be perfect. But tolerating sin is not a virtue in your own life, and it's not a virtue when you do it in other people's lives. Secondly, true believers don't delight in others living in sin. They rejoice at their repentance. That's what they do. They're they're eagerly awaiting the repentance, just like Titus was. He could not have joy in these Corinthians because they were in sin. But when they repented, he was filled with joy. The third thing is, is we might be surprised at what God would do if we confronted people concerning their sin. You really truly might be surprised when you do it with the right attitude and you do it in the right way. You might be surprised that, hey, people get right with God. Amen? We're so accustomed to, I think, thinking the worst about people. That for that reason we don't share the gospel with them or we don't talk to them about their sin. And finally, we'll be done. A truly repentant believer can be trusted. A proud, habitual sinner cannot. Amen. You can get a guy, he was a train robber. I don't know what he did, you know, back in the 1800s. He was an awful person, but he got saved. And you can trust that guy better than you can the person living in habitual sin. You can. Listen, folks, godly sorrow is what we need to be after. Godly sorrow, sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, that leads to joy. We need to look for it in our life, and we need to be looking for it in the lives of our brothers and sisters and all those that are around us. Amen. I know I went through that kind of quick tonight, but uh, we finished it anyway.